The Great Alaskan Earthquakes of 1899 by Charles Davison. Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On September 11, 1899, it was known in all the seismological observatories of the world that a violent earthquake had occurred in some distant region on the previous evening. From the duration of the tremors which preceded the large undulations on the different records, it was ascertained that the origin of the earthquake must have been in or near Alaska, and this determination was soon verified by the arrival of meager dispatches from the central part of the disturbed area. There for a time the matter rested. The earthquake was evidently one of the first magnitude, or it would not have been recorded in such distant regions. The damage to property, however, was insignificant, simply because there was little property to destroy. Nor was there any loss of life, for the country is almost uninhabited. Indeed, nearly six years elapsed before it became known to scientific men that the earthquake presented phenomena of the most unusual interest. Fortunately, most of these phenomena left traces that were still distinct in 1905, though others presented features that were not recognized until a year or two later. In the summer of 1905, a party of geologists sent by the United States Geological Survey visited Yakutat Bay. The party was under the direction of the late Professor Ralph S. Tarr with Mr. Lawrence Martin as physiographic assistant. Very early in their work, they noticed dead mussels and barnacles adhering to the cliff, far above the reach of the present tides. Had the barnacles died many years ago, they would have lost their hold on the rock, and indeed many of them had fallen onto the ledges below. It was therefore evident that, quite recently, there must have been a considerable rise of the land, and the observers at once, and as it proved rightly, attributed the work of elevation to the crustal movements which had caused the earthquakes of 1899. In 1906, Professor Tarr again visited the district, intending to study the glaciers farther to the west, but was unable to cross them owing to their great advance and the unusually crevassed condition of their surfaces. Further observations on the effects of the earthquake on the glaciers were made by Messrs. Tarr and Martin in 1909, and again in the following year by Mr. Martin. The very valuable report on the earthquake and its effects by these two capable observers has recently been published by the Geological Survey of the United States. The earthquakes of Yakutat Bay, Alaska, in September 1899, by R. S. Tarr and L. Martin, U.S. Geological Survey, Professional Paper, 69. As the report, however, is lengthy and somewhat inaccessible to English readers, I propose in this article to give a summary of the principal facts observed, devoting special attention to those features which distinguish the earthquake from most others with which we are acquainted. These are, one, the remarkable changes of level manifested in Yakutat Bay, the maximum uplift amounting to more than 47 feet, and two, the advance and crevassing of the glaciers, which took place principally between the years 1905 and 1910, and which may not yet have come to an end. The earthquake disturbed the southern part of Alaska, and especially that district in which the average trend of the coast is nearly east and west. The region surrounding Yakutat Bay was that in which the severest shaking and the changes of level were manifested. The disturbed area on land contains 216,300 square miles, 
but this can only be about half the total disturbed area, which must therefore be estimated at about 432,000 square miles. But even this amount, great as it is, must be too small, for the earthquake was felt at two isolated places to the west, which are respectively 670 and 730 miles from Yakutat Bay. Thus, if the boundary of the disturbed area be regarded as a circle with a radius of 700 miles, the total area shaken by the earthquake must amount to about one and a half million square miles. This figure alone gives us some conception of the violence of the earthquake. It has seldom been exceeded by any known disturbance. The great Lisbon earthquake of 1755 disturbed an area of not more than about two million square miles. The Assam earthquake of 1897 one of about one and three-quarter million square miles. The Kangra, India earthquake of 1905, one of about one and one-half million square miles. The largest known disturbed area is that of the Charleston earthquake of 1886, which must have shaken more than two and three-quarter million square miles. This earthquake, however, was not one of exceptional strength. It merely owes its extensive area of perception to the presence of a sensitive and intelligent population. On the other hand, the great Japanese earthquake of 1891 disturbed only 330,000 square miles. The Californian earthquake of 1906, about 370,000 square miles, and the Messina earthquake of 1908, about 200,000 square miles. Thus, the Alaskan earthquake of 1899 must be ranked among the greatest of all recorded earthquakes. This great earthquake, however, was not the earliest of the series. So far as known, the first earthquake occurred on September 3rd at 3.30 p.m. local time, or September 4th at 12.22 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time. It was strong enough to be recorded in the seismological observatories of Europe and other distant places. There is some uncertainty as to the seat of this earthquake, but as the coast is said to have been uplifted at Yakataka, 100 miles west of Yakutat, it is possible that the central region was in the neighborhood of that place. During the next week, about 50 slight shocks were noticed near Yakutat Bay. Then, on September 10th, came two great earthquakes, one about 8 a.m. local time, the other and greatest of all at 12.22 p.m. local time, or 9.40 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. On the same day, about 50 slighter shocks were observed. Both of the great shocks originated in and near Yakutat Bay, but it is probable that the uplift of the coast occurred with the latter of the two, as the earlier one was not accompanied by any sea wave. Severe shocks also occurred on September 15th, 17th, 23rd, 26th, and 29th, intercalated among a large number of minor shakings to which little attention was naturally paid by the inhabitants of the district. At the time of the earthquakes, eight persons were camped along the shores of Yakutat Bay, near the foot of Variegated Glacier. They were all within a few miles of the region in which the chief uplift had occurred. The great shock is said to have lasted two and a half to three minutes, and while it continued, the ground waved up and down like the swells of the sea, only with much more energy, and then opened in long fissures. A small lake behind broke from its bed and swept over the camp. Shortly afterwards, a seismic sea wave about 20 feet high swept in from the bay and completed the destruction of the camps. Many dead fishes, probably killed by the sudden shock, 
which they would feel all over their bodies at once, were thrown up on the shore, and these supported the few observers until they were able to reach the village of Yakutat, about thirty miles distant. Changes of Elevation In most recent earthquakes which have accompanied changes of elevation, the district chiefly affected has been an inland one. The changes observed have therefore been relative only, for the trigonometrical resurveys which have been carried out have not sufficed to determine the actual movements of the ground in a vertical direction. But in Alaska, most of the measurements are referred to the sea level and are therefore absolute. Moreover, the coastline in this part of the country is so deeply indented by Yakutat Bay that the field of observation may be regarded as aerial rather than linear. In most parts of the bay, the shores have been uplifted, in some depressed, while in others no movement whatever could be detected. The form of Yakutat Bay will be seen from the map. On the west side, the bay is bordered by a low foreland of glacial gravels. On the east side, the northern half of the bay is straight and precipitous, and the land behind rises abruptly to heights of three or 4,000 feet. Towards the north, Yakutat Bay merges into a narrow arm, called Disenchantment Bay, which is a true fjord, bounded on both sides by steep mountains. At its north end, the inlet turns abruptly backwards and is afterwards known as Russell Fjord, the shores of which are at first straight and mountainous. The entire length of the inlet from the ocean to the head of Russell Fjord is about 70 miles. To the north of Yakutat Bay, the country is occupied by lofty mountain ranges, those of St. Elias and Fairweather, in the former of which the culminating peaks rise to heights of 18,000 and 19,500 feet. From these mountains extensive glaciers descend towards the sea, some of which, such as the Galliano, Atrevida, Hubbard, Nanatak, and Hidden Glaciers, will be referred to afterwards. Evidences of Elevation and Subsidence At first sight, the most striking evidence of the uplifts is the physiographic evidence. Before the uplift, there had been a prolonged interval of rest, during which the sea had in various places cut back cliffs, planed rock benches at their feet, and deposited some of the material carried away in extensive beaches. In many places, the rock benches are now elevated from 10 to 40 feet and form long stretches from 2 to 40 feet in width. At the bases of the cliffs behind may be seen the sea caves and chasms that had been worn in them before the uplift occurred. The beaches were also raised and are still preserved where they have not since been cut into by streams and waves. Sand dunes on the west side of Disenchantment Bay have been raised beyond the reach of further supplies of sand, and in consequence grasses have soon taken root upon their surface. In 1909, or ten years after the earthquake, the belt of dunes had lost all trace of its former condition except the hummocky surface and the sandy soil. While the cliffs were being worn back and the rock benches planed away, the streams flowing into Yakutat Bay and its branches were building up their deltas. Many of these deltas are now laid bare above the sea, and gullies are being formed in them by the streams, while the seaward slopes are being cut back by the waves into low cliffs. In Russell Fjord, a small island before the earthquake used to be connected by a sand spit with the mainland at low tide. The spit is now so much uplifted that the highest tides cannot cover it. To the north of Hankey Island, there used to be two submerged reefs, which before the earthquake were never visible. 
They are now uncovered at low tide. Again, in the cove to the southeast of Knight Island, four small islets have appeared, the two largest being 450 feet in length. The native canoemen assert that all four were submerged at high tide before the earthquakes, while two could only be seen at low tide. Two of them are now exposed at all states of the tide, and the others between mid and low tides. In many other parts of the inlet, and especially on the east side of Disenchantment Bay, there are numerous channels between small reefs and stacks and the shore, along which, according to the natives, boats could formerly pass, but which now are no longer navigable. There is, of course, nothing in the physiographic evidence to indicate the exact date at which the uplifts described took place. That it occurred, however, not long ago is shown by the appearance of the elevated ground. In the uplifted deltas and raised beaches, that is, in ground formed of soft or loose material, streams and waves soon wore away the surface. By 1909, or within ten years, many raised beaches were destroyed, and the sand dunes, as already mentioned, were covered with grasses. But in the rock benches and cliffs the effect has been but slight. Chasms are just beginning to form in the cliffs at the new sea level, but in 1905 the sea had not cut an appreciable cliff or rock bench anywhere, and the uplifted benches are only slightly modified by the streams that flow across them. For the purpose of measuring the extent of the uplift, the biological evidence is even of greater service than the phenomena described above. In approaching the coast in a boat, the white shells of dead barnacles are a striking feature. Many of the barnacles are still firmly attached to the rocks, the valves being often held together by the organic tissue. In places, they are far more abundant than the living forms at the present sea level. Moreover, few of the latter are more than three-eighths of an inch in diameter, while many of the dead barnacles are an inch and a half across. Dead mussels are even more abundant, and almost as widely distributed as the barnacles. They resembled, and were indeed at first mistaken for, clusters of blue flowers attached to ledges 18 feet or more above the present sea level. They were often found adhering to the rocks by the hair-like byssus, and the preservation of so delicate a structure until 1905 is another indication of the recency of the movement. Besides barnacles and mussels, limpets were occasionally found in 1905 attached to uplifted ledges of rock. In certain parts of the west side of Disenchantment Bay, there were also seen what looked from a distance like broad horizontal bands of whitewashed rock, but which proved to be the beached remains of a pink bryozoan that grows in tidal pools and below the low tide level. One curious result of the uplift is the mixture in one spot of land and sea organisms. The remains of barnacles, mussels, and bryozoans, which live only in the sea, now rest in spots which have been invaded by the willow and alder, the wild geranium, and other land plants. On nearly all the raised beaches and deltas, and on some of the uplifted rock benches, these land plants are to be found. The scattered condition of the flowering annuals and perennials and the grasses indicates the recency of the uplift, which is clearly proved by the woody shrubs, such as the willow and the alder. These are without exception small, and of all that were cut down in 1905, none showed more than five annual rings, and most had only three or four. Evidently, as Messrs. Tarr and Martin remark, these shorelines had been open for occupation by land plants for only four or five years. The earthquake was in the autumn six years before.
The destruction of life during the earthquakes of 1899 must have been very great. Numberless fishes were killed by the mere force of the shock. The seismic sea waves, which swept over the land after the principal earthquake, uprooted trees and destroyed vegetation by saturating the roots with salt water. But above all, there was a wholesale destruction of various marine forms, barnacles, mussels, and so on, by their uplift from the sea. When this uplift amounted to as much as ten feet or more, the intertidal animals were all killed, and their place has been supplied only scantily, if at all, by others, whose diminutive forms point to the shortness of their lives, and therefore to the recency of their migration. Thus the state of preservation of the beaches, cliffs, benches, and deltas in 1905, the fact that in that year countless barnacles and mussels were held together by undecayed organic tissue, the meager numbers and undeveloped forms of their successors in the intertidal waters, and the youth of the bushes which have invaded the new shorelines, all point to the conclusion that the uplift was accomplished a few years before 1905. There is also other evidence leading to the same result. The late Professor I. C. Russell visited Disenchantment Bay and Russell Fjord in 1890 and 1891, and observed none of the shorelines which fourteen years later were so clear. He landed with difficulty on Hankey Island, where the beach has been raised nineteen feet. At the present time it is accessible in many places. In 1895 the Canadian surveyors of the Alaskan Boundary Commission took a number of photographs at Yakutat Bay. One shows Cape Enchantment as an island. In 1905, it was a peninsula joined to the mainland by a bar that is covered only by the highest tides. Three months before the earthquake, Dr. G. K. Gilbert landed upon beaches which have since been raised 15 feet or more, and though one of the chief authorities on abandoned shorelines saw no signs whatever of the uplift. On the other hand, the Alaskan natives definitely state that the uplifts occurred with the earthquakes of September 1899, and it is important to notice that the questions put to them did not suggest the answer. Thus, it would seem almost certain that the changes of level took place on September 10, 1899, and chiefly, if not entirely, with the second shock at noon, as this was the only earthquake followed by seismic sea waves. The evidences of submergence are far less numerous and less conspicuous than those of elevation, but there can be no doubt that in small areas the coastline was depressed. In most of these, trees were killed by sand being piled up round their bases, by waves washing away their foundations, or by the submergence of their roots in salt water. Figure 152 represents a portion of Kantak Island in which spruce trees still standing erect have been killed by submergence and by the partial burial of the trees in beach sand. It is important to notice that all the areas of submergence consist of unconsolidated deposits. In some cases, it is of course possible that the submergence might be due to a settling of the deposits during the shaking, but the distribution of these areas of submergence, as will be seen later, renders it probable that the submergence was due to a real downward movement of the crust. Again, there are large areas where little or no change of level occurred, or where the uplift, if it took place, was too small to be proved. In some cases, dead barnacles were seen on a stretch of coast on which there were also living barnacles at equal heights above the present sea level. 
it is possible that there may have been an uplift of a foot or less, so that some barnacles were killed, while others were kept alive by an occasional splash of salt water. On the map, such areas are considered as having undergone no movement unless there was conclusive proof of either elevation or submergence. Amount of Elevation and Submergence We may now turn to the measurements that were made of the changes of level and their distribution along the shores of Yakutat Bay and its branches. In the measurement of the uplift, the most serviceable evidence was that provided by the dead barnacles. The vertical distance between the highest living barnacle and the highest dead barnacle, still attached to the rock, was taken to measure the uplift. In reality, the uplift may in places have been slightly greater, for the highest living barnacles may have owed their preservation to occasional splashes of salt water, while the highest dead barnacles in 1899 may have lost their hold by 1905. The effect of the double error may be to lessen the actual uplift by from 6 to 12 inches. Four-fifths of the estimates of uplift were made by means of barnacles. The remainder depended on the rise of mussels and other marine forms. On the raised beaches, measurements were made in a few cases of the vertical distance between two parallel lines of driftwood, but these, as a rule, were checked by barnacle measurements in the neighborhood. In the case of subsidence, the measurements are probably less exact. They were generally made on the vertical distance between the base of the lowest dead tree in place and that of the highest tree or shrub which had been or was being killed by the deposition of sand and gravel around it. From observations made along the coast in both directions for a hundred miles or more from Yakutat Bay, it appears that, with two possible exceptions, the changes of level were confined to Yakutat Bay and its branches. The evidence, of course, is practically confined to the neighborhood of the coast. With regard to the snow-covered mountainous track to the north, we have, and can have, no information whatever. The total length of the shores of Yakutat Bay and its branches is about 150 miles. In 1905, more than a hundred good measurements of the amount of uplift or depression were made. These show that for about 50 miles there was either no change or a very small change of level. In figure 151, these parts of the coasts are indicated by ciphers. Measurements of elevation are given in feet and inches, while the depressed portions of the coastline are indicated by shading. A glance at this map will show how variable are the changes of level, both in direction and amount. One, there are considerable stretches of coast along which changes of elevation are either negligible or do not exist. Such are the west shore of Yakutat Bay from a point opposite Port Latouche, southwards, part of the west side of Knight Island, and most of the coast from Knight Island to within four or five miles of Port Latouche. Along the southwest coast of the main branch of Russell Fjord, the uplift varies from two feet downwards. On the coast of Nunatak Fjord, the level on both sides seems unchanged. 2. The areas of depression are much smaller. Here and there along the coast from Yakutat to Knight Island and in the neighboring islands, in a short length of the coast to the north of Knight Island, and at the southern end of the south branch of Russell Fjord, the land has been lowered by amounts ranging up to seven or eight feet. 3. The areas of elevation are much larger, and the amounts of elevation are in some cases extraordinary. The coast from four or five miles south of Port Latouche to the entrance to Russell Fjord has been uplifted by amounts ranging from seven and a half feet to nearly eighteen feet, 
and on Hankey Island by more than 19 feet. The most remarkable uplift of all is that of the west coast of Disenchantment Bay between Turner and Black Glaciers. Here the rise ranges from 37 feet to the greatest ever recorded in any earthquake of 47 feet 4 inches. The northeast shore of the main branch of Russell Fjord has undergone a nearly uniform elevation of about 7 feet, while both shores of the southern branch, except the south coast, have been raised by amounts varying from 3 to 10. A remarkable feature in the changes of elevation is their rapid variation in amount over a short distance of the coast. For instance, at one point on the west coast of Disenchantment Bay, the amount of uplift is 42 feet, about a mile to the west it is 30 feet, and about a quarter of a mile farther it is 9 feet. On the east side of the same bay, the uplift is 17 feet 1 inch close to the north end of the peninsula. In the small island, Asir Island, just to the north of the peninsula, there is no evidence of any change of level. In the main portion of Russell Fjord, which is about a mile and a half wide, the elevation is slightly more than 7 feet along the east coast and less than 2 feet along the opposite shore. At the southern end of the south branch of Russell Fjord, the change of elevation varies suddenly from an uplift of 7 feet 4 inches to a depression of 5 feet. Nature of the deformation. Such sudden variations in the changes of level must be due either to faulting or to folding or warping. Minor faults, as will be seen, occur in many parts of the region, but no great fault scarps have been detected such as would account for the abrupt variations. Nevertheless, it can hardly be doubted that Messrs. Tarr and Martin are correct in attributing the variations to faulting rather than to folding. They mention four facts which are opposed to the latter explanation. The lines of deformation extend in too many directions. The zones of gradation between areas of different degrees of deformation are very narrow, while the intervening areas of uplift are broad. Minor faulting occurs in parts of the region, and profound faulting is proved by the occurrence of the great earthquakes. The straight broken lines in Figure 151 represent the courses of the faults which are inferred from the variations in the changes of level. One of the most remarkable of these faults is that marked A. At its southeastern end, it crosses the head of Russell Fjord, just where the uplift changes to depression, and where also there is a change in geological structure. It also passes exactly through three other areas in which uplift gives place rapidly to depression or to no change of level. To the east of this line, there is a straight mountain front with truncated mountain spurs reaching out nearly to the fault line. Another fault, B, or it may be a continuation of the same fault with a slight change of direction, runs along the east shore of Yakutat Bay, where the mountain front is straight and steep. If this line be continued across Yakutat Bay, it meets the opposite coast just to the west of the short line of coast in which the uplift changes rapidly from 30 to 9 feet. The great uplift of more than 47 feet of the west side of Disenchantment Bay, the smaller uplift of 17 to 19 feet on Hank Island and on the shore of the peninsula to the north of it, and the still smaller uplift of 7 to 9 feet along most of the east side of Disenchantment Bay, are explained by two faults, C and D, one on either side of Hank Island. A fifth fault, E, must follow the course of the main portion of Russell Fjord, 
for the eastern shore consists of crystalline rocks which were elevated seven feet or more, while the western shore consists of unmetamorphosed rocks which were uplifted by less than two feet. In addition to these five faults, the evidence for which is distinct, Messrs. Tarr and Martin attribute other displacements to three smaller faults, two, F and H in the islands near Yakutat, and one, G, on the west side of Yakutat Bay. End of Part 1 of The Great Alaskan Earthquakes of 1899 by Charles Davison